welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. learn new information on this case, and we are talking today with Ross A. Lincoln from The Wrap. Literally minutes after we spoke to Ross, he let us know that news broke that some crew members had used the prop guns to go pinging the morning of the shooting. This is unbelievable, Laura. What pinging is, is they were shooting cans in the desert, and someone must have left a live round in the gun that fatally shot cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Welcome, welcome to our show. This is Ross Lincoln, and Hi. you are an editor at The Rap Magazine, correct? That's correct. Or the Rap, right. the, the Rap website. We do have a print magazine, just in case anyone's curious, for our awards coverage, but our main coverage is Rap and Rap Pro, which is www.therap.com. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know yeah, you're absolutely. super busy covering this case. It's been a lot. <laughs> and we have a good team of reporters who are doing way more work than I am, so I want to give them all a shout out. Just collectively, we have a really good staff of people who uh, work their fingers literally to the bone, often under some pretty stressful circumstances. So uh, guys, if you end up watching this, I appreciate you more than you could possibly know. Thank you for being awesome. Oh, I love that. I just want to say, so last Friday on Ivy League Murders, we felt compelled to bring you the breaking news story of Alec Baldwin's shooting tragedy on the set of Rust. We've learned new information on this and are talking today with two industry insiders. And we are speaking right now with Ross A. Lincoln, and you are the editor at The Wrap. I should say, I'm, I'm the night editor at The Wrap. Sharon Waxman is my boss and she's the editor in chief and she would kill me if I didn't plug her, by the way. Hi, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the editors at The Wrap and I thank you so much for having me on. I'm really Oh, we are this. honored to have and you. you Previously worked in entertainment news at other publications? Yeah, before the wrap, I was at Deadline. And before that, I was at Box Office Pro. So I've been in the game for years. It made me an animal. That's a biggie quote, but. Uh... <laughs> we love it. I we just love, love you more now. So yeah. since Friday, there's been lots of new developments on this yeah. case. So Ross, just fill in our listeners. I'm gonna assume that everyone listening is familiar already with the tragic death of Helena Hutchins on the set of Rust because a, a prop gun, I put that in quotes, discharged. So we know it in more details. So basically what happened is Alec Baldwin, who's the star of the movie and a producer, he was practicing a shot. The shot was supposed to be aimed at the camera. So he was standing in front of the camera, the cinematographer was right behind the camera and the director of the film was right behind her, behind her right shoulder, I believe. And this is as of last night and this morning, apparently the assistant director on the shoot picked up one of three guns that was set aside for use on the shoot. He picked it up, he handed it up to Alec Baldwin and said, it's a cold gun. And that means terminologically, 
that the gun had no ammunition in it whatsoever and it was supposed to be safe. He was practicing. I don't know exactly what he was practicing, but if I had to guess, it was probably like a pull his gun out from under his coat or a holster shot or whatever. You've seen Westerns, you know the cliches. And when he did that, it sure sounds like his finger brushed the trigger and it turned out the gun had live rounds in it. The bullet shot Hutchins in the stomach and then penetrated the director's shoulder. She, of course, died and he was hospitalized for a day. One of the things that has now come out since then, in addition to all the labor issues that came out over the weekend, I'm sure people are caught up, but just real briefly, there was a walkout of several below-the-line workers on the day of the shooting. They were walking out to protest what they said were crappy working conditions. Like They said that the production wouldn't get them hotel rooms nearby. Some of them were reduced to like sleeping in their cars when they were on a shoot too long and they had too sort of a turnaround time. There were safety issues they were complaining about. None of these people appear to have been connected to the gun. So I don't want to draw a one-to-one corollary relationship with them. I just want to be clear that like, it appears, if this is true, that there were other issues on this set. So this shooting happens in that context. One of the things, I've got the article up right now. So the assistant director, whose name... It's um, Halls, Halls, right? Yeah, Dave, Dave Halls. Halls. Dave Halls. So it turns out, according to someone who worked with him, I want to stress that obviously this is an investigation. I'm not here to slander anybody that I don't know personally, but Maggie Gall, who props for a Hulu series Into the Dark in 2019, told both uh, NBC and also The Guardian that on that shoot, Halls basically disregarded fire safety regulations. And one of the quotes is, safety meetings were non-existent. Sets were almost always allowed to become increasingly claustrophobic. No established fire lanes. Exits blocked. And also that, according to these reports, he disregarded weapon safety protocols on set. Now, obviously, this is new information, and I stress that we could find out tomorrow that none of this is true. But right now, it certainly looks like a cascading series of extremely serious process failures culminating in the tragic death of someone who should still be alive. It's really sad. I wanted to ask you, because we keep hearing and we just spoke to somebody who works in movie sets that live ammunition is just not allowed on the set. And so my question is, how did this bullet wind up in this gun? I'm sure that's what everyone's question is. Well, okay. So I I want to stress that I was not there. So I am speculating, but one easily way this could happen. And this is so blanks are sometimes made from the original real bullet. Now, if, for people out there, I wrote an explainer on this on Friday. If you want to go to the wrap and read it, I was very proud of it. Um, we actually, yeah, we posted yeah. that. That was a great piece. It's, yeah. on, it's actually on our Facebook group, if anyone wants to check it out. Right. Yeah, so obviously we have a lot of guns in America, but most people don't use guns. So there's a lot of unfamiliarity with like the anatomy of ammunition, the anatomy of a gun. So when people refer to the thing that goes in the bullet as a bullet, the bullet's actually just the, like if you look at a, a casing of a cartridge, you see it has like a brass or some other metal. And then at the tip, there's like a different colored metal tip. That metal tip is the actual bullet. So what happens is this bullet has inside of it a bunch of gunpowder packed in. And there's a little primer on the bottom. Like if you look on the bottom of a shell casing, it looks like a little circle inside it, like a target. There's a firing pin that gets triggered when you pull the trigger. It sparks the primer, which ignites the gunpowder. And this creates an explosion that propels the bullet through the barrel of the gun. And that's, and of course it's an explosion. So it goes supersonic speeds unless you have something to make that not the case. Newton kicks in at that point. The cartridge remains in the gun and it gets expelled off the side, usually out the side. You, obviously, if you watch a police procedural, that's why they're always collecting shell casings on the seat of a shooting. And so sometimes, and I want to stress sometimes because it's going to depend on the budget, it's easier to make a blink from a real bullet. You just remove the projectile tip 
you either crimp it, which literally just like whatever you use, pair of pliers or whatever to like just close the tip of the bullet, or you put something like wax or paper on the tip. The whole point is to hold the gunpowder in. So theoretically, the firing pin strikes the primer, the gunpowder is ignited, and you get the bang, the recoil, and an expelled shell casing, but without a deadly projectile firing up the front of your gun. So it is entirely possible that they were making blanks this way and someone didn't check to make sure. There's a million reasons why some idiot could have put a real live round in one of their guns. And whoever did that, an idiot. Like, there's no defense for it. This is the equivalent of driving drunk, in my opinion. So on a set where you have an armor and there was a, mm-hmm. an armor, Hannah Guterres, on the yep. set, is that her responsibility? Whose responsibility is this? Ultimately, the armor should have been doing their job properly. However, there could have been any number of legitimate reasons. The police will eventually get to the bottom of this. There also is the chain of custody here that needs to be maintained. Like, my dad from Oklahoma, if anyone cares, my dad's like a super gun guy. So I was raised around guns. And he told me a few things growing up. And one of the big ones was treat every single weapon you pick up like it's loaded. He didn't say this, but in my imagination, he was like, I don't care if Thanos just snapped every bullet in existence out of existence. The gun is loaded, even if it's not. And you never pointed at anything. It's like very serious series of protocols that have to be maintained. So while the armor may very well have fallen down on the job, or they had three different weapons out for different reasons, and the AD didn't bother to double check. In any case, it sounds like it was just a, is it good? It's good. Okay, great. It's good kind of situation. Responsibility for this will obviously fall on the people who handled the gun and prepared the gun. And there was a serious breach of protocol, too, with having the first AD. The first AD, whose job is set safety, running the set, making sure that there was a serious breach of protocol when Hall's hands Baldwin this gun and says cold gun, meaning no live ammunition in this game. That's a a really good question. And a lot of armorers, a lot of people who work as armorers on movie shoots have been weighing in on this all weekend. And the consensus largely from them on sets that have good safety management, there's no point where someone who's not the armorer is going to be handing that gun. Like the time comes to hand the gun that can fire blanks to the actor, the person who does that is supposed to be one of the armorers. Like it's somebody whose expertise is firearms. As you can imagine, this being a nation with 50 different independently governed entities, the laws on those things differ from location to location. This wasn't in Los Angeles. This is in New Mexico. And I'm not fully aware of what the regulations say. But yeah, on a standard film shoot, absolutely. The armor or somebody on the armor's team should have been the person to hand the gun to Baldwin. There also should have been an effort made to check to make sure. One of the things people bring up what happened with Brandon Lee in 1993 that gun had a, they call it a squib load. It's when a, a, a round that has a projectile tip gets like lodged in the gun and no one realizes it's in there. And so when they load a blank, the blank explodes and that explosion actually propels the real bullet out of the gun just as if the real bullet had been loaded in the proper place. That happened because the, apparently the gun had been prepared a week earlier and they just locked it up and they're like, it's all good. And then they didn't check to make sure that the gun was perfectly fine when they pulled it out a week later for that particular shoot. And so, yeah, hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. To answer your question, hell yes, armor should have been the person handling this weapon. So my question is, Alec Baldwin, as a producer, is handed this gun by Halls. Mm -hmm. He knows that's out of protocol. Wouldn't that be a time to say, stop, hold on, shut this down, we've broken protocol here with the weapon, and stop the scene? I just... 
What type of responsibility? Does an actor generally check the weapon or not? No, I liken this to, and I'm speaking about Baldwin strictly as an actor here. I liken this to a mom or a dad who goes to the pharmacy to pick up medicine for their kid. They're trusting the pharmacist to prepare the medicine per the prescription made by their doctor. The pharmacist does the thing, hands them the prescription and says, this is safe to give your kids. And they take it home and the kid takes it and immediately throws up. It's not the parent's fault for, it sucks that the parent has to live with making their kids sick, but it's not in that instance, the parent's fault for giving their kid bad medicine. That's the pharmacist who screwed up. But um, what about, what if you're, you as the parent get the medicine from the pharmacist's assistant because the pharmacist is out and you break protocol? Well, it depends. I mean, it, obviously the metaphor can be taken so far. Alec no, I, I agree with you. I think it's a great yeah, metaphor. I'm just saying. I just don't think that as an actor, here's the thing. Obviously film sets have a lot of moving parts. As the producer of the film, you would assume that someone who's wearing multiple hats like that would also, one of those hats would be being aware of basic safety. On the other hand, as we know human nature, and I'm not defending any decisions here, we know human nature and sometimes things are happening and you're like, sure, okay, Billy, can you help daddy fix the car? I'm gonna put you in the driver's seat for a second. I, the bad metaphor again, but the main thing is that obviously my instinct is like, Baldwin should have been like, wait, wait, who's handing me this gun? It sounds like perhaps safety protocols weren't necessarily being followed on this shoot. And maybe it was one of those things where it's like, oh, I trust, I trust Hall. He knows what he's yeah. doing. I almost look at it like you have retractable daggers that are used on sets yeah. all the time. And if the actor believes that that's a retractable dagger, and it's even worse in a gun yeah. situation, and he stabs somebody yep. or she stabs somebody. It's one of those things. The reason why there's a breakdown of responsibilities on a film set is because the actor is not focusing on that. Maybe exactly. They should, but they're trying to like step onto their marks. They're trying to remember their lines. They're trying to remember camera directions. And I'm not saying that gun should have been checked. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? And maybe some of the responsibility... I think Baldwin has two roles here, though. He has his role as an actor and then his role as a producer. And the responsibility may more lie in, in the responsibility as a producer for allowing these conditions well, that led up to this. That's certainly true. I, but you, you guys just made something I was about to say perfectly said. He, in that point, was an actor preparing for the role. And we've all known actors and they get in that blank zone where they're just trying to be that character for a few minutes. And so like at that point, we all have the things we do in our lives that are the thing we do for a living. And so we get in the zone in that moment, are only paying attention that you get that tunnel vision. But yes, as a producer, as one of the film's producers, the responsibility for a fully functional film set does fall partly on his shoulders. The amount of which he was an actual producer versus got a production credit which obviously you guys know is a thing often very much happen. It's just like, yeah, the lead actor gets to have a producer credit and that means they get to share if this movie gets nominated for awards or they make a different cut, they get paid in a different way. I am not fully aware. And so far the reporting hasn't revealed the extent to which Alec Baldwin producer was also like in charge of this whole thing. But yes, anyone serving as producer is responsible for creating a set that the staff felt was unsafe. And the fact that it appears that they hired scabs to fill in for the workers who walked out the day of the shooting does not reflect well on the decision-making, in my opinion. Well, when you say scabs, what do you, uh, <laughs> what do you explain? Because I'm well, not sure our uh, listeners know what that uh, means. Sure. Uh, union staff walked out at the beginning of the day and they found local people to replace them. And those local people, according to union staff who have since come public with that, they obviously wouldn't be hiring union people to replace union people who walked out. They just found locals who could come in. Do you think this would have happened in Los Angeles, or do you think this is the nature of being on location in, in New Mexico? 
I think it's hugely less likely that anything like this would have happened in Los Angeles. One thing to remember about Brandon Lee, for instance, is that film was shooting in South Carolina. And Los Angeles is obviously where the eye of Sauron is in terms of the industry. You know, one of the things that I have to explain to people is like, you can't just put whatever songs you like on your jukebox if you own a bar in Los Angeles, because like the record industry is actually based here. So they send people out to bars to make sure that you're actually paying the royalties. Yeah, I've worked at bars where the bar owners got in trouble because they didn't actually like make sure to like clear everything they had. Yeah, it's like the entertainment industry is based here. So there's a lot more like, like I said, I have Sauron is on everybody. So a lot more protocols are happening. That doesn't mean that conditions aren't bad. Obviously, the uh, Sagecraft Union IATSE is currently in the middle of trying to figure out a new contract with the studios because they feel like their working conditions are complete crap and that a lot of corners are being cut. But yeah, I think it's hugely less likely that that happens in Los Angeles. You know, it's funny, Ross, I was actually working in props during that time, 1993, when Brandon Lee was shot. And I remember the protocols really changed on sets. However, I'll say it again, that work was some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. It was 16, 18 hours, two hour turnarounds, be back on set at 4.30 in the morning because we've got a day for night shot. Go, 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 go. And I wonder is this going to change anything in the industry and how things are run? Well, you know, the situation with the Stagecraft Union and the studios has been sort of very tense. IAC members authorized the union to go on strike if they were unable to reach a deal several weeks back. And then roughly two weeks ago, in the middle of negotiations, the union said, if we don't reach a deal by a week ago today, actually, was the deadline. If we don't reach the deal by that date, we will go on strike. And then that lit a fire under the studios to sort of reach a deal. When they announced the deal, a whole lot of members of the union complained about the terms of the deal. The union insisted that, like, for instance, the lowest paid members of the union will see a significant pay rate increase. But the working conditions issues, many members, I want to say many, I'm not sure how many, but many members said that they were unsatisfied with this deal and would be contesting it. And it was unclear before this shooting happened whether or not the union would ratify the deal. Presumably, things are way tenser now within that union as a result of the perfect example. This is like literally like you just point to this and go, see, see. Uh, so I imagine things are a lot more tense. One ramification, I'm sorry for babbling so much, but one other ramification, you, you guys saw last week, of course, that the show, The Rookie on ABC, the Nathan Fillion show, their showrunner announced they would no longer use live weapons ever again. They would only use like replicas and then CG and gunfire from that point forward. Well, that's my question. And it's funny you bring up the union. Yeah. because Actually, our, our next guest is someone who's in the film union and working on a movie right now. So we're going to talk to her as well for a sort of on the ground reality check. Well, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm wondering if that's not a little bit of like hitting the panic button, because this is a big tragedy. But if you look at how many guns are used on sets a day in, day out safely, and we have one of these incidents every 30 years, I mean, I'm not saying that makes it okay, but it's really very, the likelihood is so low. This is very, very infrequent. This is, in my opinion, sort of becoming a proxy fight in a larger cultural battle we're having about guns right now. You're absolutely right. These are as tragic as they are and as avoidable and never should have happened. And if there is criminal liability, it must be determined and people should be held accountable. As this incident is, you're absolutely right that they are very rare. That one of the reasons they're so notable and why everyone's so confused about how it would be possible to kill someone with a prop gun is because they're so rare. But in the middle of heightened tensions, and we are living in an era where we are seeing, thankfully, 
one of the only good things about COVID is mass shootings kind of declined for a bit. But I, we, yeah, yeah. Right. But we live in an era where mass shootings are happening all the time. And so sometimes things like this can inspire people like, well, we can't change the larger culture, but maybe we can do something micro. I agree. I think it would be something of an overreaction. But I also think that if the people who are working on these shoots collectively as an industry, and especially within the union membership, if they feel that it would be safer and not harm the art of filmmaking, I'm going to just reflexively default to where they're at on that. I certainly would not feel, I would not agree to go to work and I have the easiest, best job in the entire world. And I wouldn't agree to go to work if I felt like there were going to be things that might endanger me. And as we saw there, there have been complaints about like safety on set. And so even if something hasn't happened, I know an editor of mine used this metaphor. Are you guys familiar with the scandal, Van Halen scandal about tearing up the backstage area because the proper number of M&Ms didn't? The, 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 <laughs> right. So the reason, for those of you who, who are familiar with the story, Van Halen developed a bad reputation because once David Lee Roth trashed a hotel room because I believe it was like no brown, their writer included a clause that said no brown M&Ms are allowed in our, we want a bowl full of M&Ms, no brown M&Ms. And so the press reported at the time was like, that Van Halen's just a bunch of weird rock stars. They later explained that, no, the reason they did that is because they had this huge stage production with like hundreds of employees, a giant constructed stage set that had to be assembled and disassembled every night, packed up in trucks, moved to the next location. Like giant molding and structures, things that could fall down. It was up and elevated, lots of things to go wrong. So mm -hmm. in their opinion was, we're going to test this location for how well they play it. They do attention to detail per our instructions. In addition to all the other things they need to do right, we want a bowl of M&Ms and all the brown M&Ms taken out. And then when they look at it, they know, okay, they paid close attention to every item we have. They really read that contract. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. never yeah. heard that. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So if you uh, if you see a brown M&M, that means they probably missed something else too. And so this incident may be specifically rare, but if it's taking place in the context of a larger laxness on film sets it's a problem and it's hard to judge people too harshly for overreacting to this thing in that context, I suppose is where I'm going with that. I personally feel just as a viewer that there are very few instances where a real gun and a replica gun are going to look too different. The main instances are when you have like a close-up shot, you know, like a gun has weight and feel. And if you look at it, someone having it like a hip holster, like a Western, or you see someone like close-up shot of a guy around the corner with a, with a nine millimeter, I'm not even going to say a brand name. You can tell the difference between a real gun and a replica in certain instances. But for the most part, the shots are from farther off. You can get an airsoft rifle that will give someone enough of a feel that they can act against. It's not strictly necessary for the art of filmmaking to have that much verisimilitude. I you, you can still have cinema every day with CGI and effects, yeah. in other words. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting, Ross. And so um, I've been actually doing some searching around and some... Uh some places where crew members vent and yeah. I'm noticing a real angry vibe towards the production. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if there are going to be repercussions against the production, because there really seems to be a collective voice. A lot of the cases yeah. Sarah and I follow, maybe some powerful people do something wrong, but you, they don't really fight against a collective voice. So they're yeah. more able to overcome it. But this seems like there's a strong collective voice. Well, like like we said, this is happening in context of a serious labor fight that's right now could shut Hollywood down at any point. But also, you don't even need to be like an expert to know that there is definitely going to be a settlement for Hutchins survivors. There's no way that this production doesn't end up paying out a significant amount of money for this debt. 
Absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised if, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I would not be surprised if this, ultimately this film doesn't get completed. It's an independent production. It didn't have a distributor lined up. This is basically like they got it together to make it. I assume, I assume that the plan was, you know, shop, like send it through the festival circuit, the star power of Alec Baldwin getting it more attention than it might otherwise get. Yep. So now they have a wrongful death that the details are showing was absolutely preventable. And they're almost certainly going to get sued and sued successfully. Obviously, we're getting details pretty rapidly for a case like this, too. People are talking, and they're talking in in great detail to local law enforcement authorities. I have a suspicion that there may be, accountability may not just be financial. But again, it's going to be up to the end of the investigation before we know whether there's criminal liability or not. It's really curious in the case of Alec Baldwin, too, because he's made so many provocative statements about guns and about responsibility about guns. and. Anti-gun statements. Anti-gun statements. And I do think that if he's not held, and apparently, I guess, Hutchins' husband and child had breakfast with him. That's something I read, like, right the next day. Yeah, I think he, yeah. You know, but I, but I. I, met with them. I I think sort of in the court of public opinion, he's, he's going to be pretty vilified and, and has been. Will oh, be, absolutely. You know? the, I personally, like, I find that, not not you, you're, this is a good point to bring up, but I personally find that dialogue pretty exhausting. That whole thing where it's like, oh, you say you, you oppose evil, but you played Darth Vader in Star Wars. And it's like, <laughs> right. yeah, okay, I'm not actually endorsing choking people out with the force. It's just a cool story. You know, it's like, right. we're obviously in the middle of an ongoing culture war on like so many different issues. It's like so tiring. And there's always this like attempt to like ding somebody for hypocrisy. I would think, and I and I don't know the extent to which Alec Baldwin has ever touched a gun in real life. I think his views on guns are sincerely held. But oftentimes, I know a lot of people who enjoy shooty shooty pew pew movies who have never touched a gun in their life and are actually very uncomfortable with it. I happen to have been raised around guns. Um, I'm not saying that I'm some kind of like Rambo type who you can trust to defend you if bad guys were coming for you. I just have a little more degree of comfort with them. I think um, you would have made a different choice of shirt, Ross, if you were a Rambo type. I'm just going to say. No, I haven't, I haven't done enough sit-ups today, so I'm definitely not going to show off my flabs. <laughs> um, the, uh, but yeah, I mean, like people don't, like a lot of people who, they know what guns are and they know how dangerous they are, but they don't really fully have it like internalized, just like what it means. And also someone hands you a gun and says, this is cold. You're like, oh, it's cold. It's safe, perfectly safe. And like I said, maybe Alec Baldwin hadn't had it rammed into his head. Like my father rammed it into my head, which is like every gun is loaded, even if it's not never pointed at something you're not going to shoot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I suppose, what's that phrase um, that was used against John Podesta in the 2016 election? It's going to be his time in the barrel just before the Hillary Clinton emails were leaked in 2016. It's going to be Alec Baldwin's time in the barrel. But he's the kind of guy that, he's a colorful figure. He makes lots of uh, blustering and uh, he mixes it up rhetorically in the court in the court of public opinion. And this is one of those instances where I think even he would agree that like, you know, don't speak up if you can't handle it when people start speaking up against you. So maintain a low profile, man. <laughs> well, and how do you see this? I wonder, I'm just, this is just an opinion, but, sure, yeah. I mean, but moving forward for Alec Baldwin, because he is such an, you know, big actor. And do you think this is going to affect his career? I don't know. But yeah, you know what, whether it affects his career long-term is going to depend on his degree of liability. I think that if it turns out that the breakdown in process that happened, if the set problems, if there's some way that he is actually 
directly part or partly responsible for that, that's gonna that's gonna hurt him. I think aside from that, let's assume just for the rhetorical sake that he doesn't have any actual responsibility for what went wrong on this set. I don't envy what he's going through right now. Not at I, all. None I, of these people I do, you know. Yeah, like but the most horrible thing in the world is to thought you were doing something that was going to be a one way and it, it, it someone ends up dead and it's the, the kind of helplessness of like beating yourself up. And so I think that, yeah, if there's criminal liability that's found and if, or if there's any liability that's found, especially with all the onset stuff and some of it is attached to him, it could for a minute affect him. However, let's remember that Louis C.K. is making hundreds of thousands of dollars to tour the country at comedy clubs. We live in a time when accountability seems to be uh, few and far between for a lot of people. So perhaps not. But I want to stress, I don't know his degree of culpability. I actually feel really sorry for him right now. I think yeah, it's horrible. I do too. Well, this is an ongoing case, and yeah. uh, I hope you'll come back and join us as more facts come out and so it, we can stay current with this case because it's amazing to talk to you. How do our listeners find your coverage at the at the RAP and other really, there's been other excellent yes. articles on the RAP about this. So Yeah, so go to the RAP. That's www.therap, um, W-A-R-P, like it's a rap.com. And uh, you can, if you want to follow me and see what dumb opinions I have about things like Dune, I'm at Roth. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, I'm, I'm at Ross A. Lincoln on Twitter. That's R-O-S-S-A-L-I-N-C-O-L-N on Twitter. Awesome. And we will definitely post, you know, all your, every, we'll post more of your pieces and thank you. We'll post um, your link so that any of our listeners can get in touch with you. If cool. they have questions. Thanks guys. Absolutely. This, thank this, you so much. Thank Ross, you for yeah, taking the you. time. This was a lot of fun. This was awesome. Cool. I hope you'll come back when there's more news. Yeah. Anytime you want me, I'm back. I'm yours at your service. All right. Oh, terrific. Excellent. Cool. Thanks, Ross. Love it. Thank you so much, Ross. Cool. Bye, guys. Murder. Murder. Murder.